So, okay. <coughs> so tonight, uh, stuff I've been very interested in of uh, of late um, is the congruence between. Um, the theme of separation and the way we process separations that happen in life. Um, and the, uh, the, the congruence would be the way that uh, contemporary psychology views and uh, works with this theme and the way that the Buddha did in early Buddhism. There's a lot of overlap. Um, Specifically, uh, to start out with the Buddha, separation, loss, losing contact with people, especially uh, being cast out of orbit with the loved, or being put in a situation where we no longer have access to someone that is loved, is a very, very important theme for the Buddha. In the First Noble Truth, the Buddha famously says that in life there'll be you know, aging, sickness, death, and that's inescapable. But he goes on to note that in addition to these inevitabilities, he says as well, we will be separated from the loved. We'll be stuck with the unloved. And we will have sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, something. So, this we can hear already in the First Noble Truth, a theme that in life, no matter how we live it, and he says in the First Noble Truth, is as inevitable uh, as mountains rolling in, crushing everything in their path. No army, no wealth can uh, give any escape, provide any escape. So we will all know these things. And then the second noble truth the Buddha says is that we make life so much worse. Uh, the sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, the losses could be things that we could learn to cope and survive. But we add on a desire to inoculate ourselves from these experiences. We want to avoid them. We want to not have to experience loss. And so the Buddha say, we cling to addictive sensual pleasures. We try to attain states of being where we'll never have to feel pain or loss. We try to get rid of our, our experience, the phrase the Buddha called vibhava, which means literally the sort of getting rid of pain, the sort of narcotic high of trying to achieve uh, a numbness. So we have these strategies where we try to avoid the inevitable uh, separations and losses. Even in the Buddha's five daily reflections, which he urges all practitioners to recite as a way to prepare themselves and set their expectations for life, he says, um, I am of the nature to grow 
old, I am of the nature to become sick, I am of the nature to die. The fourth daily reflection is, all that I love, I will be separated from. But, still, I own, and this is supposed to be the happy part, <laughs> I, am, uh, I am the owner of my karma, all my actions, they can still, I can still know happiness based on the way I relate to life and its experiences. So, um, let's put this aside for a moment and let's talk about a great, great psychologist named John Bowlby. Bowlby and Ainsworth were the founders of what's known as attachment theory. And John Bowlby, after World War II, did this amazing study which was groundbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, Bowlby studied children that at a crucial age of about two to three were separated from their mothers. Now, in World War II, this happened a lot. Children were put into large nurseries because London and big cities, Birmingham, etc., were being bombed by the Nazis. And so to secure the children, the children were taken out of the cities, which were being bombed, and placed in large nurseries, were cared for. Um, so they were traumatically separated from contact with their mother. Additionally, he studied children that were put in hospital due to injuries, and these were long-term injuries. Now, at the time, nobody thought much of Bowlby's studies. There was a belief in the time that children really didn't need constant maternal care, that they should be able to, they should, so long as they had food and uh, water and supplies, that emotionally they should so long as there wasn't a direct trauma, the child should turn out okay. So, um, Bowlby, thankfully, wasn't too convinced by this logic. And he decided to do a large clinical study of the way the children experienced this separation from their mothers. And what he discovered is that there's a universal which means transpersonal process of grieving or mourning. And that, if done correctly, if we know how to mourn, we, in the best of all worlds, can begin to let go of losses, or we can begin to open our lives up to other people. I'll talk more about this. But if we don't mourn, if we try to circumvent the process of, of sadness and sorrow and lamentation and grief, what happens is rather than sparing ourselves sadness, which is the human tendency to want to do, to not feel sad, to not feel depressed, instead what we do is we create dysphoric, which is not good, in other words, mm -hmm. unskillful, really, really, uh, emotionally blocked, and uh, very bad results. So trying to not feel, as the Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth, trying to not feel sorrow, lamentation, and grief doesn't prevent suffering, it creates suffering. I'm going to work you through this. So, 
The first phase of grief when a child is separated from the mother is known as the stage of protest. Uh, it's a denial stage where the child does not accept that the mother is not present. And it demands to be returned, that the mother be returned. It's, um, I think, let me, what's the exact name of the phase? is shock, numbness, and protest. And that pretty much gives it away. The child does not accept that it's been separated from its mother. And it goes into a state of stomping its feet, crying for uh, the mother. It is in a state of um, absolute denial. The second stage is searching. The child begins to see that there's a, a void in its life, that it's been separated, but rather than accepting that the mother is no longer present and will not be for a while, the child uh, will search and search and look for either the mother itself or for an exact replacement. The third stage is when finally the child gives up and realizes that the mother is no longer present, that no return will be possible, at least right now, and it falls into absolute despair and lamentation and sorrow. Now, rather than this being a bad thing, and we all tend to view our depression as bad, but actually depression in this case and sadness is a good thing because it allows the child to make a crucial emotional transition from an expectation of a mother being there to the place where it can open up and seek comfort and connections from people other than the mother, with other nurses, other children that are available. Somehow, Bowlby determined that this stage of mourning was essential to transitioning in life and, and having a new emotional openness. Finally, the fourth stage of grieving is when we acknowledge the loss and we begin to transition incrementally to people who are available. The relationship is different now. We're not expecting a mother to come and take care of our every needs. We're opening to other people but with modified expectation. So that's the fourth stage. Now, I'm going to go through all of the damages that can happen to us in each of these stages if we don't move through. In case you're wondering, well, this is the guy's talk, why is this Buddhist guy talking about children? What has this got to do with me? Unfortunately, all of the studies by Masterson and afterwards showed that the exact same processes that children use to get over losses, we adults use too. And furthermore, if we don't know how to mourn our losses, just like children get stuck, we get stuck, and we don't learn how to move on in life. So let's talk about the first stage, protest. Adults do this very well, by the way. We protest when we have a loss, and we go into very long stories about how it's unfair, how we've been singled out, why me. With children, it's just a stamping of the feet and a demanding to see the mother. But what happens is when we uh, stay in protest, 
we never open to any other human beings. And very often children who stay stuck in protest for too long, when the mother does eventually return, they ignore the mother. And they actually prefer to be with toys. They get to a place where they are so uh, setting off a wall between themselves and others that they move to replacement objects rather than to trust other people. They cannot in any way acknowledge that the loss has happened, and yet they no longer can trust the mother when she returns. So the only solution is for the child to simply become caught up in playing with toys as a replacement for human beings. We see this in times with people who've been traumatized in childhood. They very often will become addicted to video games or addicted to lifestyles that don't require other people and emotional intimacy. The second stage is uh, the stage of searching. This is a more common place for people to get stuck. Rather than uh, just constantly protesting the loss, what people will do is try to find an exact replacement for the mother, somebody that will in essence, come in and assume the mother's role. And this we can do in life. People who have never accepted the separation from parents or at a crucial point in their life expected to have parental care and it wasn't given, what happens is we can get caught in what's known as a repetition compulsion. We search and search and search for a replacement. Of course, this is a very bad state of affairs because if we're constantly looking for a mother or a father to come in and rescue us, as adults, we'll be disappointed. Very few people want to play that role. But if we are afraid of going into the depression and the loss and the sorrow and the sadness and the lamentation and the grief, then we'll be stuck because the loss is to process it requires real deep depression and lamentation. Now, why does it require us to be in such a state of mourning to let go and to transition? What Bowlby realized that was really of fundamental insight was that we all have these things called internal working maps. These are our emotional expectations of the world. And rather than being held in the conscious part of the brain, the left hemisphere, we carry these working models in the right hemisphere, which we're largely unconscious of. But they're, in essence, they're expectations. So when a child is young, up to about two years, it carries around a working model that there's a mother to take care of it. And so in that age, we have the working model that no matter what I do, I have a mother, and she's looking after me if, if all things are good and we don't have narcissistic mothers. Um, we will uh, have somebody to rescue us. So that's the template. That's the working model. Hopefully, if all things work out, we transition. Uh, there's a time when the, another parent, an, another mother or, another, or a father, comes in and rescues the child from the orbit of the mother and pulls the child into a larger world. And so the child 
grieves for a while for the lack of access to the mother, but then what, it hap what happens is it gives birth to a new working model. There's a mother, there's a second mother or a father, there's a larger world. And then slowly over life, with each transition as we're forced into schools and put into e increasingly difficult interpersonal experiences, we update our models so that eventually, if all works out, what happens is we wind up with a model of being a member of a community where there are people who will not mother or father us, but people who will be there to empathetically, compassionately understand and connect and be there when we need guidance and support. So this is a lot of difficult transitioning. Life requires a lot of letting go. We constantly would prefer to return or regress, as it were, to the state of being mothered or being mothered and fathered or having just a couple people who take care of us and meet our every needs. And it's very tempting to not want to feel the sadness of these stages going by and to move on to a more appropriate map that meets the actual conditions of our lives. So what happens when people get stuck either stuck in the orbit of the mother, or B, they become traumatically separated and don't accept that the mother is not present, they keep looking for a mother to come in and rescue them. So the role of mourning is to let go, to wipe away that old model so that a new model of the world can replace it. This is why the third step is called disorganization. When we are traumatically separated from someone we love, we experience a traumatic moment where we have no working emotional model that builds our expectations of others. So we are, in essence, when we are in mourning, we are completely overwhelmed because the, the way we've emotionally viewed the world and all the expectations we relied on no longer make sense. We want to have a mother it's not there. We want to have a mother or a father or a husband or a wife, but for some reason we've been separated, and so that figure no longer matches our reality. We need that trauma, in essence, that uh, deep state of sadness so that we can finally let go of the old map and move into the new. So this is why... The Buddha said, there's no way around knowing sadness. There's no way around knowing loss. So the question finally becomes, if I have to make these transitions in life where I have to let go at times of people that, for some reason, I can no longer have in my life, sometimes we have to make boundaries with parents, sometimes we have to move away from loved ones where relationships are no longer working out. Sometimes we have to leave safe environments, jobs or families or whatever, and we have to uh, transition to a new working emotional model of the world. How can we do this in a way that is not making it worse, that is bearable? So the Buddha proposed a couple of processes. The first is to use mindfulness, which means when we are at a place where we are experiencing a, a deeply felt 
separation from someone we love, rather than our normal process, which is to get stuck in the stories of what it all means, what's going to happen to me, speculation, the Buddha talked about the process as a somatic one, feeling the loss in the body, putting aside the story which is actually generally the story is a form of protest that will keep us stuck in an earlier stage of mourning. What we want to do is instead go into the body and ask, how does this feel? What's going on here? What needs my attention? Open to the way it feels in the chest and in the throat and in the belly and in the shoulders. If we go into the kinesthetic feeling states, this is really the process that will help us move through the various stages of letting go. Because the right hemisphere, which is doing all the work during loss, doesn't understand language anyway. What it understands is when we give attention and awareness to the actual physicality of grief itself, the sobbing, the tightness in the throat, the, the, the wavering in the voice, they slouch of the body, all of these sensations, when we attend to them, they verify the loss to the right hemisphere. And this is the process that allows us to move on. In addition to this, there's a lot to be said for what's known as self-soothing strategies. Most people, rather than feeling their sadness or their disappointment in life, their, their losses, what we do is we turn towards addictions, which the Buddha called the second noble truth. We try to escape. We try to avoid. We try to numb ourselves. These avoidance strategies or addictions try to literally create a, a state where we don't have to feel the loss and of course, if we don't feel the loss, we don't actually process it. Soothing strategies allow us to feel a loss, but at the same time to not be overwhelmed by it. So it's not escapist, but it's something that creates a, a um, what the Winnicott called a transitional object. For example, when a child is making the transition from its mother constant access to its mother, it's given what's known as a security blanket or a toy, or it will have an imaginary friend. All of these objects allow the child to work through the sadness of not having the mother available, but still have something that gives it a sense of security, a sense of sensations that feel good. As an adult, when we're going through loss and grief, we can take advantage of things like uh, taking a warm bath, getting a massage, doing yoga, sitting in the sun, having a warm cup of tea, getting together with friends and expressing our emotional states. We can uh, do all kinds of, of hand coordination things, gardening, uh, crafts. All of these states are not escapist. We will still feel the sadness, the heaviness of the mood, the discomfort and loss in the body, but 
these are grounding elements that allow us to work through loss in a way that still allows us to transition and let go of the old working model and move into a new way of interacting with the world. So we don't have to just go through it the way we normally do, which is bombarding ourselves with stressful thoughts and uh, depriving ourselves of soothing. Finally, uh, a lot of good <coughs> clinical papers recommend finding what's known as a safe object, which is somebody that you can trust to open up the experience and share with who you know will be there. This can be a, f a very close friend that you trust, somebody who's empathetically or emotionally tolerant, someone who doesn't try to fix you or try to cheer you up but just listens. You don't want somebody to cheer you up when we're going through loss. We need someone to create simply a safe space for us to verbalize or try to express the experience. Sometimes it can be a therapist. It can be uh, anyone that you've seen is empathetic. But having that person available to you also can make the experience much more bearable. So to summarize... Um, lots of times in life we try to develop strategies to not feel sad, to not feel loneliness. We turn on the television, we run to Facebook, we run to alcohol, we run to shopping addictions, we run to food, we run to all kinds of strategies to not feel this lingering sadness, but actually the ability to open to and feel the experience of loss and grief and loneliness and separation is probably the most crucial adult process we can develop to allow ourselves in life to live meaningful lives. And when we learn how to transition and continue to bring up ourselves emotionally up to date in life, then we can also truly appreciate joy. When we are keeping sadness at bay and not allowing ourselves to feel the darkness that's there, we never truly appreciate joy. <coughs> we relate to it as something that we cling to. We don't like to acknowledge the impermanence. We try to constantly look for a kind of joy that will never go away, and that's an unrealistic expectation. When we open to the sadnesses and the losses in life, we can open to joy, understanding that everything is changing and passing. And we can truly be with life, giving it the attention and the witnessing that it so deserves. So um, I hope there was something in there that was of value to you. Um, I'm going to turn off this. And... Um, so now, uh...